Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. At this time, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 23. And what we saw, we did uh, Daniel chapter 9, we read the whole chapter, we did an overview. And then we're going to kind of now take a microcosmic look on a select number of verses that help us to understand future events for the Jews, Jerusalem, and even for us. So Daniel is praying. He starts out and he knows that, listen, the Jews were taken into captivity from the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Seventy years is coming up. Daniel knows that God keeps his promises. He knows through the scrolls of Jeremiah that the captivity is only to last for 70 years. So he starts really praying, warfaring, confessing his sins, the sins of the people, real true intercessory prayer. Uh, as he's praying, we can look at the elements of Daniel's prayer. A lot of really neat elements to the prayer. Uh, also, God answers his prayer. Now, as we go through these select few verses in the same chapter, we're going to see, we, we, we delve deeper into Daniel 9, and we see that God gives Daniel much more than he could ever ask for. You know, Daniel wants to know, listen, can my people go back to Israel, Judah, where they, they just want to live a, a life of peace? And God gives him so much more information, and he even gives him information on the Messiah, which was something that Daniel probably wasn't expecting. And this is our God. This is the God that we serve. Um, he wants us to be prosperous. He wants us to be godly. He wants us to have a close relationship with him, and he just is the father of good gifts. But we know also, as we go through this, there's going to be four events that I'm going to cover that the prophecy is going to espouse. We're going to look at these four events, and then we're also going to see, obviously, as we do most Sundays or all Sundays, that God is faithful to the end. And because God is faithful to the end, his people should be faithful to the end. So let's jump in in Daniel chapter 9. Just a little reference point from 1 to 23. Uh, again, Daniel's praying, confessing his sins, the sins of the people, uh, wants to know about the future of his people and, and the city of Jerusalem, and God sends Gabriel with the response. So verse 23, at the beginning, Gabriel speaking to him, he says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks, here's the answer, seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy or the most holy place. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the Prince who is to come uh, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined, then he shall confirm a covenant with Israel, or with many, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. 
And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So this is amazing because, you know, in the Old Testament, you can lead a Jewish person to their beloved Messiah through the Old Testament. It's right here. You know, there's a, this, this time frame that the Messiah would come in. Um, so much happens in the book of Daniel that I actually have to address those who are against the book because they say if they don't believe in God, they don't believe in supernatural powers, they don't believe in prophecy, knowing history before it occurs. Well, what we have to ta say is that for those who maybe came in here a little skeptical, well, we know that the Masoretic text, which was roughly seven, 700 to 1000 AD, Masoretic text has Daniel in it. Let's go back. Before the Masoretic text, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls um, go from the 3rd century BC to the 1st century AD. Uh, before that, we have the Septuagint. Now, all these things, you can ask somebody who's secular, and these are just manuscripts, right? Sometimes written in different languages in different time periods, and they just continue to copy word for word what God set forth originally, Right? So let's go back to the Septuagint. It just means really 70. 70 Jewish leaders or scholars, when they were under Grecian rule, wanted the Greeks, the polytheists. They were worshiping all these weird gods. They wanted them to know the monotheistic gods. So they translated the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. That's the Septuagint. I have a copy at home. Very, very accurate translation. Okay? Secular archaeologists, whatever, they say, yeah, we know the Septuagint exists. And then we go back a little further to the 6th century BC and we have Daniel's writing. So no matter how you slice it, even if you don't want to give it 6th century BC, and I would give a concession, which really don't have to, the Septuagint is very clear. When that was written, Daniel still had no way of knowing all this stuff. And he's predicting things that are happening in our future. So how is this possible? It's an omniscient God, a God who's outside of time, who sees all. It's very simple. So a few things come into mind. Gabriel tells him, the angel, that 70 weeks are determined for your people, the Jews, and the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, the word week in Hebrew is, actually it's Shabuah, well, you could call it Shabuah, however you want to say it, but a Shabuah is a period of seven years, right? Just much like our decade is a period of 10 years. Now, so you take the seven-year period, the week, the Shabuah, you multiply that by 70, 70 times 7 years is 490 years determined for what? For your people, the Jews, and for Jerusalem, your holy city. This has nothing to do with the church, and I'm going to come back to that. Nothing at all, these seven-year periods. Now, because 490 years have, have passed from Daniel speaking this and would have taken the Jews into the first century, where God's promise is unfulfilled, because if you look at verse 24, these things didn't happen, save one or two, unless, for some reason, God stopped the prophetic time clock. If we could put up the image. There's a, a, an organization that actually, I think, did a pretty good job. Maybe one or two things I'm a little, I would disagree, but it's nothing serious. Um, but it's a very good timeline, because we see in linear time. When we read prophetic books, we can get confused. We're in the 6th century BC, we're in our future, we're in the present, we're going back to Grecian, we're going... So we get confused, but see, God sees everything at once. It's not confusing to Him. We have to catch up with Him because He sees outside of time. But basically, the way I look at it is that 
You know, it wasn't until my son started playing basketball and, you know, the time clock is going. It's a set amount of time. And then when you hear that really loud, obnoxious buzzer, the clock stops. Time doesn't stop, but the clock stops for the game. They do what they need to do. The buzzer kicks on again. The clock starts again. So for sports fans, that's the best way I could explain this. So if you look at, if you look at time, right, Adam, creation, Abraham, this is time, okay? And here is the command to start the 70 weeks or the 490 years. And it goes over here. And then the clock stops with the church age. What happened to the Jews? What happened to that last seven? He puts it out here somewhere. Now, if you look at time in the last 2,000 years, you can see in this area are a lot of events. You can see, you know, the Renaissance, the Dark Ages, World War I, World War II, and we're probably right about here, okay? Very interesting. Um, and then the seventh year will kick in again, and I'll try to make it a little bit more clear as we go on. Well, let's talk about what happened, because some of you are saying, you know, I'm, I'm still confused. Help me out through this. So let's walk through it. What was supposed to happen for the Jews in Jerusalem in this 490-year time period? Well, for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. More like a, you know, you look at transgression, sins, iniquity, they, they're, they're, it's sin. It's missing the mark, but there's nuances to it. Transgression is a going of, across, a purposely uh, disobeying. And, and the children of Israel did this a lot. Uh, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now that's interesting because that was actually done on the cross. Christ made reconciliation for iniquity. Okay, he bore the sins of the world, and, uh, but there's, there's still a bunch of stuff that hasn't happened yet. To bring in everlasting righteousness hasn't happened. To seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy, we can play with that one a little bit as well. But a cursory reading tells us these things haven't happened yet. Now, understand Daniel's praying for his people, and he just has a simple question. God, when can we go back? But God has much more for him. And when you, when you start looking at the timeline, again, some may come here and say, gee, I never knew God's word was so intricate. I mean, right here, I'm looking at the stuff and I'm hearing what you're saying and you're throwing all these dates out at me and wow. And then you can go home and look up your secular encyclopedia and find all the dates that I give you are accurate, right? But God said it before it actually took place. As a matter of fact, the, the Persians were very favorable to the Jews because their, Cyrus's name was written in the Old Testament. Um, there's also tradition that says that when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem, that the priest showed him his information. And he looked at it and go, oh, wow, this is amazing. He goes, I'm, forget it. He goes, I'm not conquering you people. He goes, you're, you're fine. And he let them continue to do what they were doing until one of his successors was anti-Semitic and started problems with them. So, you know, imagine you're a conqueror and, and you're from a different people completely. You go to conquer these people. They show you a scroll and your name's written there and in the manner that you would conquer and such. Pretty fascinating. So this is really where you can win somebody to Christ through history, and history before it's happened. But this is our God. This is Daniel's God, and this is our God. Some people say, well, Daniel was greatly beloved. Well, everybody sitting in here, you're greatly beloved too. You're greatly beloved so much that God sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. We have to get out of the habit of looking at actual people in the Bible as if they were somehow superior and, and we can't be used by God. That's not true. 
That's what I love about the Bible. It shows all their flaws and their outright sins and having to repent and, and come back to God. They're no different than you and I. So keep that in mind. God still is looking for servants to use because, let me tell you something, the harvest is getting riper and riper. The heads are getting whiter and whiter. They're ready to be picked. And he needs some people. He doesn't need, but he allows us to work with him. And that's an honor, quite frankly. So continuing on, there's four main events to this answered prayer. Now remember, this prayer and this you know, back and forth takes place roughly in the 6th century B.C. So the first thing is, yes, Daniel, Daniel, the Jewish people, your people, will be allowed to go back to your holy city, to Jerusalem. And as an added bonus, not only are they going to get to go back, but they're going to get to rebuild. Right? Only question that Daniel really had. In 538 B.C., Cyrus the Persian, a wildly, worldly accepted date, Cyrus the Persian gave the command to allow the Jews to return to their land and rebuild the temple. You can pick this up in Ezra 1. You can find it in Isaiah 44, 28. This was one of the many decrees that the Persians had dealing with the Jews. I'm not going to go through all of them. There's literally dozens of them. I'm going to go with the ones that are pertinent to what we're, we're studying this morning. Uh, you look at the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Ezekiel, parts of other books deal with the Jews under Persian rule. Now, for those of you that are geography-minded, Persia was the old name for Iran. We know Iran through what's happened in the Islamic Revolution, okay? But Iran was a much different country before that takeover. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of cultural, they were favorable to the Jews and Christians. I read about, a lot about Iran or Persia um, a few Sundays back. Very fascinating. Um, so three more events have to take place. Daniel, you guys are going to get to go back. The second event is that the street and the wall will be built in troublesome times, verse 25. The street shall be built again and the wall. Now, this, there was seven weeks, or seven times seven is 49 years. Um, after which command? Would it be the one that I talked about under Cyrus in 538 B.C.? The answer is no. And I'm going to show you mathematically why. There's another command that came from a successive Persian king, and this was Artaxerxes Longimanus. Now, if you look in your encyclopedias, you'll find this guy. And I'm not saying these guys were wonderful people. I'm just saying that God softened their hearts to be able to allow the Jews under their captivity to move freely. God had to fulfill his promises and prophecy. This is pretty amazing stuff. You could actually read secular sources about how the Jews were treated under the Persians. Many of them treated them very well. Okay, so in 445 B.C., Artaxerxes Longimanus gave the command not only to go back, because that was already given under six, uh, previous kings, but to additionally build the walls and the gates that were in ruins, and this is picked up in Nehemiah too. Now think about this. You know, a, a nation who's got, uh, who's subjugated subjects, they don't necessarily want them to go back and rebuild walls and gates, because that means they can shut them out. So it took a while before somebody actually said, you know, I'll, we'll let you build the walls and the gates. Okay, so this happened in 445 B.C. Now it says it was done in troublesome times. In Nehemiah 4, we, we see a picture, now not against the Persians, but Israel had some, or the, the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem had some local enemies that surrounded them. And they were more than happy to see the Jews' city in ruins, the gates, you know, burned with fire and the temple leveled. However, the Jews were able to go back with the edicts from the uh, Persian kings 
not only to rebuild, but rebuild the walls and the gates. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, it's fascinating, uh, chapter 4, they have, they have a, a trumpet, which would be a call to arms. They had a sword, and they had trowel, masonry tools. Uh, the picture of having a, a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. So guess what? The walls and the streets were built in troublesome times. So the Bible doesn't just give events, it gives details of events. You see everything coming together like a puzzle. Pretty fascinating. And I'll tell you what, the walls went up quickly, but it did take a lot to clean up all the rubble in the cities. Remember, they didn't have caterpillars, they didn't have earth movers. They had to do all this stuff through manual labor. The third event that takes place, we got two more, is after the seven weeks and the additional 62 weeks. He says it right here. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Add them together, you get 69 weeks. Um, I know it's early for mathematics, but uh, <laughs> it's a simple multiplication. Uh, trust me, I did it on my calculator a few times. We're talking about 483 years here uh, from Artaxerxes' uh, decree. What's going to happen? Well, if you take March 445 B.C. at 483 years, but adjust for changes from the Babylonian calendar, which was a 360-year calendar, to the Julian calendar that the Romans used, right? You get to be right around April in the year 32 A.D. What happened in the year 32 A.D.? In April. Well, let's read. Put up Luke 19.29. Read it with me. And it came to pass when he, Jesus, came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. If anyone asks you, where are you loosing him? Or why are you loosing him? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. This is pretty amazing. They go, listen, your animals were very, uh, they were your bank accounts sometimes. A good animal that lasted a long time, they could give you milk, meat, hide. So the disciples go and pretty much, in all intents and purposes, they're stealing the animal. But Jesus said to them, when you're asked, he knew all this stuff, say, the Lord has need of him. Now that was a step of faith of the disciples. Are you sure we're not going to get locked up? You know what I'm saying? Uh, so some dude says, or probably the owner, hey, what are you doing with my animal? The Lord has need of him. Oh, okay, take him. You see that? This, this goes with the messianic fever that I'm going to speak about. When I first read the Bible, I would, it's amazing how we, we, we pick apart God's word. I was a new believer. I didn't, I'm like, that's ridiculous. I'm in law enforcement. That guy, they would have thrown him in jail. But there was a, uh, a messianic fever that was going on. We're going to talk about why there was. Observant Jews were all talking. Hey, you know, this is about the time. Just like, oh, I'll get to that. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, verse 32. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosening the colt, the owner said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. So they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own garments on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And as they went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice uh, and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, let me stop there. So you have this situation. You can fake a lot of things in life. You know, people say, well, how do we know that Jesus and all this stuff? You, you can't fake when you're going to come into the world, right? 
what family you're going to be born into. Now, some of us, if we knew that ahead of time, we might say, I'll take the next bus. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That being aside, in Jesus' sense, he came right at the exact time that God had a timetable that the Messiah would come. Fascinating stuff. So the third event is the advent of Messiah, the Prince. I, I, suspe- I tell you, my conjecture is that Daniel was blown away. He, he didn't ask for that, but he got more information. Wow, i got to write this stuff down. This explains a lot of enigmas in Scripture. Again, let's go with this messianic fever at the first century. Why is it that the disciples would drop what they were doing and follow Jesus? Sounds like a fairy tale. Remember, why did the guy who they were taking as animal say, yeah, okay, you can have it, the Lord has need of it. Remember, Daniel knew Jeremiah's prophecy. That's where we are. We're in the book of Daniel. He knew Jeremiah's 70 years were coming to a close. Observant Jews knew Daniel's first century uh, prophecies. Think about that. So, you know, listen, maybe they grew up and they understood Hebrew and they went to Hebrew school. And basically, maybe they started to go the wrong way in life, but they knew the scripture. They knew the prophecy. So everybody had this messianic fever. People were worshiping, worshiping at Jesus' feet. Others forcefully tried to make Jesus a king. We read this in scripture. But Jesus often withdrew and said, it's not my time. Remember at the wedding of Cana, even his mother said, oh, they're out of wine. Jesus said, what's that to me? It's not my time yet. But then he, was, he did change water into wine. So there was a time that Jesus knew that he was able to present himself based on what he and the Father had already planned before he came into the world. Pretty fascinating stuff. So even the, even the uh, religious leaders knew that this messianic fever, that this time was coming, but they rejected anyone who wasn't going to conquer Rome. There was a, a rabbi, Rachman, in the Babylonian Talmud who said, quote, Woe to us for the scepter departed from Judah and Messiah has not come. Right? First century... I'll just go back to Genesis 49.10. This is heavy. If you say, you know, this is heavy for me. Listen, when you started skiing, how many times did you fall down? When you went to pass your bar, how many times did you fail before you passed it? This is God's word. This is so much more important than any of the other things that you could do in your life. And, and I tell you, I was like that too. I didn't know anything. I was calling my friends at 11 o'clock at night. I read something. I read a parable. Go to sleep. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning about it. But I wanted to know. And this is how we start off like children. But over time, God reveals things to us, and he gives it to us, and, and we, we learn it. So Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shalom, meaning the Messiah, comes. And to him shall be the, obedient of the pe- obedience of the people. So basically, in the first century, the sceptership was taken from the Jewish people. They weren't allowed to self-rule. That's why they had to go to Pilate for capital punishment. That was part of the big thing that they were able to do uh, in their sceptership, to be able to almost be a vassal state of Rome, but still run day-to-day operations. That was removed from them in the first century. So it's pretty amazing. I just continue on with Luke 39, or excuse me, Luke 19. Well, we just read, continuing on, it says, And then some of the Pharisees called to him, Jesus, from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city of Jerusalem and wept over it, saying, Check this out. If you had known even you, especially in this your day, 
the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Think of the Roman Jewish wars under Titus, uh, A.D. 66 through 70, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So this was the day that the Lord had made, literally, Jesus came in as the Messiah. He was being worshipped as the Messiah. And uh, the religious leaders were ticked off because they wanted to, they want, are you going to conquer Rome? No, not at this time. We reject you. So Jesus uh, rebuked the city and the religious system for not knowing the time of its visitation, according to Daniel, of the Messiah. Stuff's very deep and very intricate. Let's look further into what happens to the Messiah. Verse 26a, going back to Daniel. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, meaning killed, but not for himself. Well, he didn't die for his own sins, but actually if you go into the Hebrew, what that, there's another translation which means that, that he would not take the kingdom at that time. So Messiah would be killed, he would be cut off, and would not receive the kingdom at that time. Show this to your friends who are Jewish. This is Jesus. Well, we don't reject any Messiah that was killed. And well, Right here it says it in Daniel. You guys accept this. It's still in the Masoretic text. So Daniel didn't ask about the Messiah, but he was given the information about the Messiah. So here's my question. If Daniel's asking about the, um, about the redemption of Jerusalem, the city, and the rebuilding, why would God give him something that he didn't pray about? The answer is that his people needed spiritual redemption. Yeah, it was great to build another temple. Yeah, it was great to rebuild the city and rejoice. And it's great to have God's favor. But the inside, their hearts, were more important than the outside. And he did that through the Messiah. Remember, the religious leader said, we want redemption literally from the outside. Jesus says, no, I didn't come for that. He came to save their souls. And you know, today it's no different. There are Christians who have this external facade about oh, I'm a churchgoer, I'm this, I'm that, but where's the heart? You know, we can be Christians and not have a heart towards God. And when we get to heaven or we get to, to judgment, Jesus will say to some, depart from me, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. Not like he doesn't know who they are. God knows everything, but I never knew you. You know, we never walked together. We never talked together. We never shared together. We never communed together. So do we know God on an intimate level, on the inside, doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we don't sin, or is it just window dressing? So before we go criticizing and chastising the Jews, we should look at our own hearts. Because if we're truly children of God, if we're truly Christians, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. If we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, then there should be spiritual fruit that's produced by that. Right? The Jews wanted physical redemption. But God knew that he could never have his children with him in heaven unless there was spiritual redemption. Now, I spoke recently at my brother's funeral, and um, I can tell that some were not happy with what I said. You know, in funerals, people talk about this, the physical, the smiles, the discussions, and I'm trying to tell them the way to heaven. And it doesn't help when as a clergy member who's basically deceiving people and saying that when you die, we can do things and they can do things to get into heaven. So I had to be the bearer of the truth. And of course, 
in some areas it wasn't received very well. But that's life. If you know the truth, you have a responsibility to give the truth in love, but you have a responsibility. Somebody has to do it. Okay? So what happened after Messiah's death? Verse 26b. We continue on. There's only two verses left. It says, And the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come, remember the false Christ comes, the Antichrist, before the true Christ comes again. So the false Christ, the Antichrist comes, the prince, the people of the prince who is to come. Who are the people of that prince? Well, remember in our uh, Daniel 7 study, right, the Romans, right, out of the Roman Empire will come the two legs and the, the ten toes, okay, and, you know, there would be this, the horn that rises up that plucks up three horns and takes over, but it comes from the Roman Empire. What do they do, these people of the prince who is to come, the Romans? A.D. 66 through 70, they destroyed Jerusalem was sacked so many times, but it was only leveled to the ground, I believe, twice. Um, they destroyed it, they defiled it, they trampled all through the Holy of Holies, they, they, they sacked the gold, they, um, they busted up all the stones, and it, just, they were, it was just a visceral hatred that they had that they were going to teach them a lesson. Okay? So now we come out of the Grecian period of emphasis, remember in Daniel 8, but into the Roman period of emphasis, back to that. And verse 26 at the end, the end shall be with a flood until the end of the, of the war desolations are determined. You know, you have these flood and this de desolations. In 70 AD, there was a major, what's called the diaspora of the Jews. And that means literally a seeding. Because of the persecution of that war between AD 66 through 70, I believe there was a time that the Romans barred Jewish people from Jerusalem. There was persecution, they killed many of them, they made slaves of others. So understandably, Jewish people dispersed. They went all through the Middle East. This is amazing. So this seeding, this, this flood, this, this dissipation continues until 1948 when, when Israel becomes a nation. And then there's this repatriation back from all these lands. Every year, Israel has the statistics on how many Jewish people are coming back to Israel. So you had this dispersion. And then you have this reseeding, right, according to Ezekiel 36, 37, and so forth. What about the last event, the fourth event, the last week, the last seven days, or the last seven years, excuse me? Because think about it, if the 70 weeks passed, or 490 years from the 445 BC, that would take us all the way to 39 AD, and all those promises weren't fulfilled. Again, the clock stopped. It didn't run contiguously where it's, it's touching, every year is touching, there was a break. It's got to start again. This is because of a, a pause in the prophecy uh, due to the death of Messiah. I'm going to read also Matthew 23. Get these little tidbits of what Jesus speaking about. He gives us clues to what's going on. Now, I would take this scripture and also, um, for those that, I don't know, have issues... Some, when you're witnessing with the New Testament, this is a, a great parallel to Second Chronicles 36. The writer of Chronicles says the same thing. Our people, we stoned the prophets. Every time God would rise up and send another prophet, we killed them. And then we got punished for it. This is right back in the Old Testament. So let's go to Matthew 23, starting with 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks 
under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus held them accountable. The Father held them accountable for refusing their Messiah, for not knowing the time of their visitation. And because of that, the prophetic clock stopped after the Messiah was cut off. The church age was ushered in. But eventually the clock will start again. Now, is it unusual for a pause in the prophetic clock? The answer is no. If we read 90, uh, Isaiah 9.6, unto us a child is, is given, right? A son is born. And to 9.7, now Jesus, is, he's got this, this do, domination going. He's, it's the second coming. He's ruling. So from Isaiah 9.6 to 9.7, there's a break in the prophetic clock. Different dispensations. If you look at Isaiah 61.2 to Isaiah 61.3, same thing. Look at it on your own. Right? You see what the, what, the, what the Messiah does in his first coming, and then you see his second coming um, in the next verse. And it's separated by thousands of years. Jesus uh, says the same thing, Luke 4.19 to 4.20. He reads uh, from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But Jesus didn't finish the rest of it, the day of vengeance, because there's a, a great break between those two verses. Remember, verses were added by people. God will, God will shift gears. This period, that period, okay? Zechariah 9.9 to 9.10 is also a break. 2 Samuel 7.13 to 7.14. God speaks about the Messiah, and then he goes into human kings. He kind of does this back and forth. So it's, it's not unusual for there to be a pause in any prophetic clock. So the church age gets ushered in. If I could, we could put up that image again. All right, so here's the 69 weeks. Right here is where uh, Jerusalem rejects her Messiah. The, 60, the last week hasn't taken place yet. It's in our future. The church age is ushered in the age of grace. And there's still a hanging seven-year period. How many remember the 2000 elections? Remember the hanging chads in Florida? <laughs> that people were on the edge of their seat, depending on who you were voting for, Bush or Gore. And all these chads were hanging, and some of them, while they were moving, the cards fell, and then they would give it to the other person. So we don't have hanging chads, but we have a hanging seven-year period that's yet to take place. I'll read verse 27 again, the last verse here. Then he, okay, there's a break here. Between verse 26 and 27 is the church age. Then he shall confirm a covenant, who? This prince that's going to come, this false Christ. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, really many in Israel, because that's what the center is now. Everything's focused back on the Jews in Jerusalem, because it's the last week. It's that last seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, or that Shabuah, Three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So the, the temple will be rebuilt, rebuilt. We know that. We've talked about that. And the sacrifices will start again. But this Antichrist will pretend to make friends with Israel, and he'll say, I'm, I can stop all these bus attacks and wars and rockets coming into your area. And he'll be successful for a while because he has a nefarious purpose. He'll get them um, to a point where they're lulled into a false sense of security, and then he's going to strike. Then he goes into the temple on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So this abomination of desolation that, that, uh, that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24 uh, to take place. There's a lot to this, I know. 
there's a lot packed into here. But it, what, it, what does appear is that when this seven-year period starts again, because Jews and Israel are center stage, the church is removed. I'll read to you 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And then I'll put it into perspective. Here's the Apostle Paul uh, speaking to Christians, writing to Christians who were concerned that the Lord might have come and they missed it. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. People who die not in the Lord don't have hope. If we die in the Lord, we have hope. It's like stepping in from one room to the other. Jesus says you, 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 you pass into ever, you'll pass judgment, you'll pass into everlasting life. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who were asleep or have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's an order to this, this rapture or this harpazo, whatever language you're looking at it in, which just means a, a snatching up. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So really, we should be comforted by this as well, knowing that this is a future event. There's a point in time, remember the sports buzzer. Sports buzzer's going to go off. The trumpet's going to go off. The saints, if we could put that image back on, the saints will be carried up to be with the Lord, the church age ends, and that seven-year period will continue. And if you've been with us in our Revelation study, all these wild, fantastic things happen. Um, God's wrath is poured out, uh, but his, his church is not there. We're called up to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there's like a, a, it's almost like there's human history, and then it's, it bifurcates, and everybody else is still on the earth. We go this way, and while they're living here, we're living in heaven and a lot of really neat things are happening. And then the Lord in Revelation 19, um, on a white horse, he comes back down, which, which appears the saints are following him, and the bifurcation now goes back into one, and the Lord rules over human history. He destroys the Antichrist, destroys his armies. You have the millennial kingdom and the Lord's righteous rule. It's pretty fascinating. A little complex, but it's fascinating. Um, there's so many scriptures that are involved in here, it's, it's, I wouldn't have time to go through all of them. But basically, here's another question. Is the rapture or a snatching up new? The answer is no. Who else got taken up? Enoch. Enoch was a really righteous person in Genesis. The Lord just took him up. I want you to be with me. He was still alive. Right? Elijah. Remember, Elijah was carried up in chariots of fire. I want you, it's your time. I want you to come up to be with me. So this, this rapture type uh, idea is not new. Uh, Jesus' ascension. He rose from the dead. It was his time to ascend into heaven. His disciples watched as he was carried up into heaven. Matthew 27, when Jesus died for his sins of the world, it says that many came out of the graves and appeared to many in Jerusalem, right? So that's pretty fascinating. Types, children of Israel. Ch children of Israel were taken from Egypt, out of Egypt, and then the judgments came. The flood of Noah. The, uh, Noah and his family and their wives they were taken out of the flood, and then judgment came. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not appointed us, the church, to wrath. Revelation 3.10, the church is going to be kept from the hour of trial that will fall upon the whole earth. So, 
last few last part of this is so what will happen when the Lord comes back and he sets up his millennial reign let's go back to Daniel all the way back to 24 to finish the transgression and the sin that often plagued the Jews in Israel it doesn't always plague them sometimes we in the church we can get frustrated by our own selves can't we all right? The Apostle Paul says the sin that so easily ensnares us. You know, there are some that just go through life and they carry so much baggage. And Jesus says, take my yoke, it's light, it's easy. Take my burden, you know, follow me, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. But I, I think that a lot of people don't always leave all their baggage and take his yoke up. They still hang on to little things here and there. And sometimes it's a growth, it's a maturity issue. But, you know, I know, I know Christians, they're just tired just sorrow. They've just been through so much. Let me tell you something. I don't, I don't minimize it. There's good news at the end. You know, it would be nice not to fight with our flesh anymore. So let me raise my hand and say, I hate fighting with my flesh. There's parts of, of, of the old Joe that, that's tied to this sinful flesh that irritate me. I get on my own nerves. <laughs> Sometimes the person that irritates me the most is the one I'm looking at in the mirror. So I'm just going to be honest with you. You know, I'm looking forward to the day where well, I don't have to call on the Holy Spirit and I don't have to repent. And I don't have to ask the Lord to help me to stop struggling with that. You know, where did that come out of left field? It's just going to be a nice thing when we get to be with the Lord and, you know, we're just not going to feel these horrible things that we do being tied to the flesh. You know, when, when I was in the partying scene and I was in my 20s and before I was a Christian... None of the stuff made me feel guilty. I looked forward to my weekends and my weekdays. I looked forward to my alcohol, right? Now it has no power over me. But when things do bother me still or when I don't like things about my own life, I am fighting with it. Whereas in the old days, I would just go with it. It was just fun. I didn't kill anybody. That's the standard, right? When we're not Christians, I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> we should all go to heaven. Most of us didn't kill anybody. Unless something you're going to tell me, but... Don't tell me. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's the story. <clears throat> Moving on. Uh, making reconciliation for iniquity, Christ did that on the cross. Uh, ushering in everlasting righteousness, has that happened? No, not until that last Shabuah is done. Uh, the Lord will rule the redeemed, the millennial kingdom and beyond. Sealing up the vision and prophecy. You don't need vision and prophecy when you're in the Lord's presence. Because now you're with him. You're, you're in, in a groove with him. You know, he's ruling. He's the righteous ruler. Um, same thing right, why, when we're in the Lord's presence, we don't need to pray anymore. Why? Because we're, we're right with him. The answers are right there. So some things won't, you won't have to you know, share the gospel anymore. Because all those who have been saved, it's, it's a done deal. Everybody around you, you can't witness to anybody. They're all saved in heaven. So, sealing up the vision and prophecy, that's it, it's done. And anointing the most holy or the most holy place. This one, a lot of people have uh, different uh, ideas on this. You know, the Revelation 11 temple that's going to be rebuilt. Some make a parallel between the temple and Ezekiel from 40 to 48. Um, or it could be figurative. Or it could be that under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, the second temple was already anointed. And that was during that time of the weeks when the Jews went back and they, they anointed it although there's some speculation or some 
reading in the scripture that God's Shekinah glory that actually didn't come back into the second temple. Again, I have to reach those who are just new and those who really know the Bible. So for those of you, you understand what I'm talking about. And lastly, we could put that image up again. Who does this? You know, when I, I grew up in a religion, in a denomination, and I was looking for the truth, now I, got, I have Korans at home, I got the Book of Mormon, I got all kinds of stuff. I didn't want to just be a part of a religion, I wanted to find the truth. But you know what? You won't find this anywhere else but in God's Word. Isn't it amazing that Muslims use selective parts of the Bible, Jews use selective parts of the Bible? Even Christians, we should be using the whole Bible, but some even, you know, pseudo groups use parts of the Bible. What is the common denominator? It's the Bible. If you look at your timeline, you'll see a whole bunch of scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, Thessalonians, Revelation, Mark, Matthew, Daniel. Um, who does this? God. That's how much he cares about you and I. That's how much he cares about our future. Sometimes God cares more about our future than we care about our future. Nobody does this except a loving, personal, intimate, caring God that cares about you and I. Why does he do it? Because he wants to be involved in our lives. See, he's faithful to the end, and therefore we should be faithful to the end. He's at the finish line. I was talking to, uh, I don't know how, how far I should get into this, uh, in my children's ministry devotions downstairs, just talking about those marathons, 26 mile and... <laughs> Bill, our elder, is a, he runs and he does some of this stuff. And I said, yeah, and, and they can see the, the tape and they're, you know, they could be a quarter of a mile away and, and they, don't, they don't even know how they get their legs to go, but they can just see that tape and they urinate and they defecate. He goes, they really do that? I'm like, oh, yeah. The body just says, I give up and everything comes out. They get to the finish line, they fall over and they're, they're given sugar and they're, they're given medical attention but they can see that tape. Brothers and sisters, some of you can see that tape and you're struggling. Ask God. Seriously, get down on your hands and knees alone. Ask Him. Minister to me, Lord. Give me what it takes to make it to the finish line. You see, He's faithful to the end. When I put that in the title, you don't know who I was talking about. I'm talking about both of us. I've been preaching the gospel before I was a pastor and I'm finding it as the years go on it's, it's becoming harder and harder and people are more antagonistic to it, but I'm not going to stop. And now there's a price. There's always been a price in the Middle East and Africa and other places, but now there's starting to become a price in the United States. Will you quit, Christian? Or will you be faithful to the end? Let's pray. You've been listening to to every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.